Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to be starting in verse 28, finishing up the chapter and going through verse 10 of chapter 3. And last week, Andy talked about in his sermon the word abide. Now, that's a word that John uses a lot in this short epistle. Abide. And he talked about how it means to remain, to stay, to live. Turn me down a little. And that idea of abiding is at the heart of what John is going to talk about this morning in chapters 2 and 3 abiding in Christ. What does it mean to remain in him, to live in him? He begins in verse 28 with the exhortation, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We saw last week the Antichrist denying Jesus and leaving the church. But John says, you little children, you abide in him. You remain in Christ. And do so so that when he appears, you can have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Adam and Eve shrank from God in the garden after they sinned. They tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, and they hid from him when they heard him walking in the garden because they were ashamed of their nakedness and of their guilt. Did it work? Of, of course it didn't work. You can't hide from someone who is omniscient and omnipresent. And fig leaves would do a terrible job of covering your physical nakedness, let alone the guilt of your soul. But it's in our sinful nature to want to hide from his sight. Jesus is coming back. He will appear. And for the incarnation, Paul tells us in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself. But on that day, when he does return, when he does appear, he will appear in all the fullness of his glory. His righteousness and his holiness are going to burn like fire. And to say that the sinner is going to shrink from that is one of the biggest understatements ever. John says in Revelation chapter 6, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. But on that day, people will cry out to the rocks and the mountains in a desperate attempt to try to hide from the righteousness of Christ. And yet John says, abide in him so that you may have confidence. Confidence when he appears. Jesus is coming back in all his glory. His righteousness will burn like a fire, but we can approach him with confidence because the only place we can hide is in him. We can stand before him because we have been covered not with fig leaves, but with his robe of righteousness. And he is righteous. John goes on in verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And notice John doesn't say, if you know he's righteous, you can be sure that the only one who, that only those who practice righteousness will abide in him. That's not what he says. John is going to call us to righteousness. We'll see that later in chapter three. But first things first, please hear this, church. John's message is not that you can only abide in Christ if you practice righteousness. He's not saying Jesus is righteous and he's coming back, so you better make it a practice to be righteous too. No, the foundation isn't what you're doing, it's who you are. You don't start with practicing righteousness so that you can be sure you're born of him. No, you're born of him, and so that gives you the desire and the ability to practice righteousness. You can only practice righteousness because you're born of him. And that might seem like a subtle difference, but it's not. Because in that first way of thinking, there is no shrinking or there is, there is no lack of shrinking or shame. There certainly isn't any confidence in it. Every failing, every sin is a threat to your ability to abide in Christ if you start with your own righteousness. It is filled with doubt, not confidence. And there are those who believe that you can lose your salvation, that you can turn your back on Christ after he's brought you into his flock, that you can reject the gift that he's given to you. And there are others who would say, you can't lose your salvation. If you're really saved, you can never lose that. But we saw earlier in chapter two last week that there are people who walk away. And so... They, they weren't really saved. And so, you know, you really can't be sure if you're saved 
until you come to the end of your life and you never walked away either. And that one might be a little more subtle. But ultimately, what both of these things are saying is that your salvation, your ability to abide in Christ, depend on your ability to keep practicing righteousness. But John says, if we know he is righteous, we know those who practice righteousness are born of him. John is saying you start with the fact that you were born of Christ. You are born of him. You are his, you are the child of God, the son or the daughter of God in Christ. And if he's righteous, then so are you. Abide in him, John's saying. Abide in his righteousness and you will have confidence when he appears. And that might sound great, but what if I don't feel confident? What if I don't feel like I've been very good at practicing righteousness? Doesn't that mean that I might not be born of him after all? You might be sitting here this morning thinking, I, I look at my life and I don't see myself practicing righteousness. My temper is explosive and it keeps blowing up on the people I care about most. Or I keep going back to those websites over and over. Or I barely read my Bible and my prayer life's practically non-existent. Or you might be sitting here this morning thinking, I, on the outside it looks like I'm doing all the right things, but you don't know what my heart's like. I might be able to do the right things and avoid the wrong things, but my heart is filled to the brim with selfishness and pride and lust. This can't be what practicing righteousness feels like. And if I'm not practicing righteousness, is there really a difference between needing to be righteous for Jesus to accept me and being righteous because he's already accepted me? What does it matter why someone can be righteous if I don't feel righteous? How do I abide in Christ then? Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This morning, if you're not feeling confident, the solution is not to fix something about yourself. 
If you're feeling unrighteous, the answer isn't to find a way to make yourself more righteous. If you're feeling like you're not abiding with Christ, there is nothing for you to do but look. Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You are the children of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. You didn't have to do something to make yourself acceptable to him in the beginning. You didn't have to do something to be saved. You don't have to do something now to remain in him. All there is for us to do is to look at his love and see what he has already done. Because we never mature and outgrow the gospel itself. How do we remain in Christ? What does it look like to abide in him? It means continually going back to the first things. By remembering that he is the one who loved us and he made us righteous. He made us his children. We never outgrow that. All there is for us to do to abide is to look at his love. And this, the struggle is real to feel unrighteous, to, be, to feel the weight of our sin. But John promises that that won't always be the case, that what we really are is not yet come, that he is going to make us pure even as he is pure, that one day we won't have that crushing weight of, I just can't do what I'm supposed to do. I can't withhold from the things I'm supposed to be avoiding. I'm, I, I know I want, I'm supposed to abide. I want to abide, but I constantly feel that pull of the world and my sin. We are not yet what we truly are. One day we will fully be able to experience the righteousness that we already have in him. And so we abide now. We keep coming back to his righteousness now confident that on that day he will make us like himself fully. He told us to abide in Christ that we might have confidence when he returns. This is what we can have confidence of, that when he returns, he will complete that good work. He will make us fully and perfectly pure, even as he is pure. You are already his children. John makes that abundantly clear throughout this. You are his children. Do not doubt that. 
but on that day we will finally be able to live with him in his presence and see him face to face. He goes on in verse 4. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawless, lawlessness. So like I mentioned earlier, John isn't unconcerned with our righteousness. We can't just avoid the issue. It's, we are confident in Christ, but that doesn't mean that we can just pursue our sin either. What does he mean by that? Everyone who makes a practice, practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. At first glance, it, it sounds like it's just redundant. Like, okay, you broke a law, you sinned. It means the same thing. But I don't think he's just being repetitive to try to drive home a point. Because notice, he didn't say... He didn't, he didn't say sinning is the same as breaking the law. He said when you sin, you are practicing lawlessness. Lawlessness isn't just a breaking of a single law. Lawlessness is an ongoing, continual state of being. When you sin, you are in the state of being lawless. I think what he's doing is he's addressing a fundamental lie we often believe about our sin. That that sin is just, it stands on its own. It's one mistake. It's one law that we broke in that instance. But being in a state of lawlessness means being outside the law. We're not a criminal who broke a single law. We're rebels who have rejected the law as a whole. So, of course, the putting away of our sin matters. Of course, righteousness matters. We can't remain in Christ and remain in a state of lawlessness and rejecting of his word. They're mutually exclusive. Verses 5 and 7, he goes on, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Of course, the putting away of our sin matters. Paul addresses the same issue in Romans 5 and 6. In chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 5, Paul talks about Jesus being our second Adam, and that just as through one man, the first Adam, death entered the world, so too through the second, better Adam, Christ, grace and life entered the world. And he comes to the end of chapter 5, and he says, now that the law, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And our sinful nature is too often tempted to think, well, if sin increased, or excuse me, if grace increased through our sin, then doesn't more sin just mean more grace? What does my sin matter if the only result of it is that I get more grace? Can't I abide in Christ even in my unrighteousness if my abiding is dependent on his righteousness, not on mine? And so Paul starts chapter 6 saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Literally, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul goes on to point out, don't you realize that being baptized into Christ means being baptized into his death and his resurrection? God promised Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, if you sin against me, if you break my law, you will die. And he meant it. They died. They were separated from him. But we've been united with Christ in his death. In a very real and literal sense, we died on that cross with Christ. Our old nature is dead and buried. And Paul goes on to say, more than that, you were united with him in a death like his, you will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What, Paul, what John and Paul would both say is if you're asking the question, can I just keep sinning since it will just mean more grace will abound? Can I remain in sin since I cannot lose my status as his child, then you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, how could I possibly keep on sinning? What does my sin have to offer now? Whatever cheap counterfeits my sin lies in saying it will give me, pale in comparison to the realities that I have in Christ. What is left for me there? The question isn't, can I keep sinning and have confidence in Christ and abide in him? The question is, because I have confidence in Christ, because I abide in Christ, how could I go back to my sin? It's why in the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to keep on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
you can't be in two places at once. You can't have a holiday at the sea, as Lewis says, and keep making mud pies in the alley. We know which is better. How could we possibly be satisfied with our unrighteousness? We know the joys of abiding in the love of Christ. And those are the only two options, abiding in our sin or abiding in Christ. Verses 8 through 10, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And who, sorry, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John already made it clear back in verse 2 that we are the children of God. This isn't some guilt trip he throws in at the end. You're his child, so start acting like it. Which one are you going to be, a child of God or a child of the devil? No, John's reminding us, you are the children of God. You are his daughter. You are his son. It's because we are sure of that fact. It's because we abide in him that we ought to pursue righteousness. We are his children. We have his seed in us, as John says. How could we do anything else? We are no longer the children of the devil. We, we all were, but that's not who we are. And at the end of verse 10, if you noticed, he gave that final warning. He has a new thought. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that can seem kind of out of place, stopping in verse 10 like we are. But this is just his introduction of a new thought. We're going to see him delve into this deeper in chapter, the rest of chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It might seem a little out of place, thrown in like that, but this is the most practical application for John's call to righteousness, that we would love our brother. Remember when Jesus was asked when they tried to trick him, what's the greatest commandment? His answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
love God, love your neighbor. All of righteousness depends on those two points. So how do we know if we're pursuing righteousness? How do we know if we are doing the works of a child of God? The first place we should start is, are we loving each other like he loves us? If the answer is no, then that's where we need to start. Because everything else that we try would be in vain if we left that out. Are our relationships marked by a Christ-like sacrificial love for the other? Is that the identifying mark of our home life and our friendships and here at the church? We are the children of God. Do we love his other kids the way he does? And when you talk about loving one another, inevitably somebody's thinking, but I really don't like this person. Do I have to like them in order to love them? We saw earlier that asking the question, can I remain in my sin if that just means more grace is the wrong question. The right question is how could I possibly want to keep going on in sin? In the same way, I think the question, do I have to like them in order to love them, is the wrong question. The right question is, do you love them? And if not, how can I love them better? And when we start there, when we actually pursue loving that other person the way that Christ loves them, then all of a sudden the question of do I like them or not becomes moot. Because when we truly love them the way that Christ loves them, we become incapable of disliking them. But what do we do if we find ourselves honestly incapable of loving them? I've tried. I really have. But the pain runs too deep. There's been too much hurt for too long. I want to abide in Christ. I want to pursue righteousness. I've tried to forgive them. I've tried to love them. I just can't seem to bring myself to do it. The answer isn't about trying harder or better. The answer is the same that it's been all morning. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has shown to you. When we find ourselves incapable of loving one another, it's not about buckling down and trying harder and doing things and acting like we love them. Just like everything else, the answer is just to look at the kind of love that Christ has already shown to us. And when we look at the love Christ has shown to us, 
and we ask him to give us the love for that person that he has for them, miraculous things can happen. I want to read something written by a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, for those who don't know who she was, she was a Dutch Christian uh, who lived through World War II. And when the Nazis invaded Holland, she and her family uh, spent the entire time trying to protect and hide Jewish people from the Nazis. And eventually, they were betrayed and caught. And she and several of her family members were arrested and sent to concentration camps. And she was the only one in her family who survived. Her father, her sister, her nephew all died. And her own survival was a miracle. She was released from the prison camp because of a clerical error one week before the order came down to execute all the women in her age group in the camp. And she spent the rest of her life ministering to those both who had suffered under the Nazis uh, and those who were themselves Nazis. And she spent the rest of her time traveling the world, sharing the gospel and promising people that the only way to find healing from their pain was to surrender to the love of Christ and to his forgiveness. And so what I'm going to read this morning comes from a night where she had to put all of that into practice. She had been speaking at a church, talking once again about the importance and the beauty and the, the healing that comes from the love of Christ and his forgiveness. And when it was over, a man started walking up to her that she immediately recognized as one of the cruelest guards at her camp. And it became apparent immediately that he didn't recognize her, he didn't remember her, but he came up to her and he confessed that he had been a guard at Ravensbrook where she'd been imprisoned. And he talked about how amazing it was that he could be forgiven in Christ. And then he reached out his hand and asked the impossible. He said, Fraulein, can you forgive me? She said, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy, her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. 
And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Romans 5, 5, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. Few of us have as strong a humanly reason to hate someone as she did to hate that man. When it came to it, she couldn't bring herself to love him. And yet when she prayed, Lord, you supply the, fe the feeling. You love him. Help me to love him. He supplied the love for her. That is what pursuing righteousness, what looking at the love the Father has already shown to us and abiding in him looks like. When we find ourselves unable to love one another or forgive one another, all there is for us to do is to see what kind of love the Father has already shown to us. That we, that I should be called a child of God And so whatever the reason, if you feel like you can't approach Christ with confidence, the answer is see what kind of love he has already shown you. If you feel like you haven't been abiding in him, see what kind of love he has already shown you. If you feel like you haven't been pursuing righteousness, see what kind of love he has already shown you. If you haven't loved your brother or your sister the way that he loves them, see what kind of love the Father has shown you. You are the children of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. Abide in Christ. Abide in his love. And let the righteousness grow from that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we are your children. That is not something that we deserve. It's not something that we could have made happen for ourselves. And yet you have said that we are your sons and daughters. Lord, help us to abide in that. Let us see the lies and the cheap counterfeits that the world promises for what they are and see you in all your glory and desire that. Father, thank you for making us your children. 
Thank you for giving us your righteousness. And we look forward to the day when we will be what we really are, when we will live with you face to face. In your son's name, amen.